kind of what happened last week while I was at home. But let's quickly open up our Bibles and go to Psalm number 60. So we came back from Africa and my father was having some physical complications with breathing. And we found out that he was allergic to something called codeine, which is in some cough medicine. So his vocal cords were swelling up. It was blocking his passageway and he was fainting, just passing out. And it was getting pretty serious because some of these falls, he was bruising himself. Being in the 80s, you kind of know how that would work out. So I, I had waited a few days and then they told me that he was in ICU. My siblings was giving me a phone call. And so I had everybody pray because I knew I was going to go home. I said, just pray it more than anything else. I need to be able to witness to my dad and lead him to Christ. So I had an opportunity to talk to my dad more about Jesus in those few days than we ever talked about in our entire life. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. We just were not, not those kind of kind of people. But on the last day, the doctor was in there. He spent 45 minutes talking to us about a tracheostomy and freezing my dad's vocal cords and everything. And I was praying, Lord, how can I get an opportunity to really just dive right in there and, and, and talk straight about the gospel? So once the doctor left, I sat down on the edge of my dad's bed and I grabbed his hand and I said, Dad, we've talked about your physical health. I said, Rick and Kim, my brother and sister, who are both Christians also, I said, they want me to talk to you about your spiritual health. So I then began to tell him the story of Luke chapter 7 at the end of it about the woman that came and stood behind Jesus. She was weeping and her tears fell on his feet and she washed his feet with the tears in her hair. And how Jesus gave the illustration said, suppose a banker had two people that owed him money. One owed him $500, another owed him $50, and the banker forgave them both. Which of the two do you believe would love the banker the most? And of course, the host of the dinner party where Jesus was at, he said, I suppose the one that was forgiven the most. And the Lord said, well, this woman has come in and you didn't give me any anointing. You didn't kiss my cheek or anything like that. But this woman has done all of that since I've come in. And though her sins are many, she's been forgiven. And the one that is forgiven much loveth much. So I then began to explain to my dad. I said, now, dad, I said, it would be a heartbreaking thing if if something were to happen to you and you passed away and we didn't know where in the world you went. And I said, I know that I would not be able to endure a funeral if I did not know I was going to see you again. And I said, I I'm still that same little boy that used to wait for you to get off second shift. And then I'd hide up under the covers there in the, in, in the bed and wait for you to come in and then rub your, your beard across my bare face and then kind of tickle me. And so by now I'm choked up, I'm crying and he's teary eyed. And I said, dad, the gospel is simple. You have not done the kinds of sins that could keep the Lord from forgiving you. And I said, I want to pray with you. And I said, would that be all right? He said, sure, that'd be fine. I said, well, I want you to repeat after me as, as we pray. I said, it's obvious that, that something's going on here. And so we began to pray. And I said, Heavenly Father, he said, Heavenly Father, I said, please forgive me of my sins. He said the same thing but he never got through the sentence 
he just broke and just started crying, just started shaking and convulsing, just crying in the bed like a little kid, you know. And, and I just reached out and grabbed him and hugged him and kissed his forehead and just let him know how much I loved him. And it was a powerful, powerful meeting. And I, I was so glad that the mission was accomplished. All of you know for years I've mentioned my dad in different meetings and said pray for him. So for, for him to enter into the, the kingdom of God, to know now there's a new name written down in glory, was a very wonderful and a very powerful thing. So we appreciate your prayers. We thank the Lord for that. We know physically he'll be all taken care of. He came through his surgery fine. I'm just glad I got a new pops now. Yeah, just glad I got a new pops. Okay, so tonight I want us to get into this Kenya missions report. And in Psalm 60, I'd like to read verse 12. It's a beautiful verse. And it says, through God, we shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Anything that, that's going to be done for God, it has to be done with the help of God. And, and that's a very important thing. The evangelism in East Africa that's going on right now and what we're a part of is, is really a, a good thing as far as what, what the Lord is doing over there. Kenya is a place that is ready for harvest, there are a lot of souls that are being affected. The people that we're working with, you can see in the pictures there, there is a gentleman by the name of Washira Karani, and he's the bishop over a lot of churches over there. He and his wife, they typically host Tiffany and I when we go over there. She was raised in a grass hut in the desert over there. She was part of a group of churches called the Full Gospel Churches of Kenya, which was started decades ago by some people from Finland. The pastor, the bishop, he's the grandson of witch doctors. Now these, these folks were poor. I mean, we, we see poverty here, but these folks were poor. He, he was telling us one time about how he was so poor that uh, he didn't have any kind of a jacket to wear to school to keep him uh, warm when he was in the winter time, so he said he got into the habit of eating these hot peppers, and I mean that's how he tried to keep himself warm. And he eats hot peppers with everything. I mean it's hardly a meal that we have he isn't asking somebody to bring him some peppers so he he can chew on. But a, a very poor place. We went over there and we visited the village where he came from and. We even took some kids with us last time to the village to visit his mom's house. And she still had no running water, no electricity, outhouse in the back. I went to the back and saw the outhouse. I knew that none of the kids were ever going to go anywhere near that place once I told them there were 10,000 flies in there. But it was, a, it was a place where every day this is where they live. I still remember giving those little kids their first piece of bubble gum. And just looking at them as they would chew on it, then pull it out and look at it, and then chuckle and smile and stick it back in their mouth and do it all over again. But Washir Karani became a Christian, and at the age of 19, God really changed his heart and, and got him involved in the ministry and kick-started him. And he's 60 now. So from 19 until 60, he started over 300 churches in East Africa. It's a lot of different churches, a lot of different fellowships telling folks about the Lord. The way that I met him, 
about seven or eight years ago, I had to minister over in Wisconsin at a conference. And I was ministering on evangelizing Muslims in the Middle East. And I was sharing all kinds of stories and testimonies. At the end of the, the, the message, the host came up there, and they were live streaming this all over the, the place. So he asked me to look in the camera and say something in Hebrew. So I did. Then he asked me to say something in Arabic to the people. So I did. Then he asked me to say something in Turkish to the people. And I did. Then he asked me to say something in Syriac to the people. So I did. And he asked me to say something in Persian to the people. And so I did. Well, Brother Karani was off in the back and he had headed an African delegation. There were probably 30 or 40 pastors from Africa that had come to this meeting. And he came up to me afterwards and asked me, would I uh, be interested in coming to Kenya. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, in preaching in a lot of places, I have people giving me cards all the time, and I cannot say I keep all of the cards. But for some reason or another, this man's card ended up in my suit pocket, and then got back here to Nebraska, I put it in this folder that I have with a lot of different cards. And so when I had made a promise to one of the gals over in Red Cloud Church when she was about five or six years old, I promised her that I'd take her to Africa before she graduated from high school. Because since she was a little girl, that's all she's ever wanted to do was missions in Africa. I said, Lord, how are we going to work this out? Then I remembered my friend that I'd met there in Kenya. So I contacted him. The Lord worked it out. And it really was a supernatural thing in the Lord putting us together. So this was our third trip over there. And God had really touched me to work with the pastors and to minister to them. And you know how the last time I came back, I said we wanted to help support at least five or six different pastors. The average family over there lives probably on less than $18 a month. The average pastor on less than 30. So for us, we pass through the drive-through at a fast food restaurant and we take care of that uh, very quickly. And so over the past couple of years, every three or four months, We have sent hundreds of dollars, oftentimes thousands of dollars over there in support of these ministers and at the same time to help in the establishment and the building of the churches. So on this trip, we had about eight days in country. After about 37 hours of travel one way, we finally got there to Nairobi, Kenya, spent the night, got up the next morning and had a breakfast with a Ugandan pastor who is right on the border of Kenya and Uganda. And I was happy to hear the testimonies of what God was doing in their movement. They've got about maybe, oh, I guess, three or 400 churches connected with them. But their founder recently died. He was about 83 or 84. And so they're kind of looking for someone to be their overseer and someone to help them and be a blessing to them. I just listened to the stories and testimonies. This man was telling me that the area where he ministers on that border is so superstitious that anybody that dies, they do not ever believe someone dies of natural causes. They believe it's because some witch doctor or someone put a curse on them. And he said in preaching the gospel, he has to work very hard to help people to see that those curses have no power when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in and changes a person's life. I would have never thought that in Uganda right now, in that area, Uganda and Kenya, 
that child abduction, child kidnapping is at an all time high because they're abducting little children in order to sacrifice in these rituals of black magic and witchcraft. Now, don't 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 be uh, so surprised. We, we don't have a whole lot of that here, but we've got a little bit of that kind of stuff around here. I remember when I first came to Nebraska and I was over preaching near Beatrice, some people took me out to a farm and out in the middle of the cornfield there somebody had cleared out an area and there was a like a, a, a pentagram burned into the grass with some some stones in the, the form of an altar where there were animal bones that had been sacrificed. Now that, that was back in 1998. I was absolutely surprised that I would run into that right here. But, but these gentlemen want to start a non-denominational Bible school. I, I, I didn't commit to anything like that, but I was, I was very happy to hear that they're interested in training the people. But imagine that. Uh, witchcraft all over the place. You know, we, we truly are a blessed people to not have to wrestle with that over and over again. Uh, the second day that we were there, we went to preach for a Pastor Joseph. He was in the picture, Pastor Joseph, Pastor Karani and his wife, and they're standing in front of a building uh, that says, I think, Ruth, uh, Ruth Agatha Assemblies of God or AG Church, because that's who they're connected with. There was a building that you could see next to uh, them where it was an addition. I wrote on there and it had a dirt floor and it was a, a stone or a brick compound. We helped, we helped supply the funds to build that. Yeah, I, all of us, your offerings, my offerings, other folks in the churches, uh, they had no money at all to, to do anything like that. But remember, just a couple of hundred dollars goes a long way over there in that world. It blessed a lot of people. When we pulled up to that church, our vehicle was the only vehicle in that grassy parking lot. Everybody else had walked for miles to come to church. It, it reminded me of years ago when I was in Indonesia and a young man had rode a bicycle something like 45 minutes or so just to hear the American come and preach the gospel when I was over there. But the folks were hungry. The young people, and uh, the older people that were there, they were excited about what God was doing. They're, they're, they're happy about the fact that they are seeing people come to Christ. But in some of the pictures, you'll notice in the crowd, generally you see women. Because like here, uh, very often, your most dedicated saints are the ladies. I don't know what it is. If it's, a, if it's an idea that religion is for women or, for, or something like that. But for some reason in different parts of the world, men just don't catch on to this like they should. And they really ought to catch the vision for this. If there's anything that's important to God, it's reaching people and ministering to those that are lost. So Pastor Joseph, that young man that's standing in the picture with Bishop and his wife, that young man came there, I think, in his mid-20s, he's now in his late 30s, and, and started with nothing and just little by little has, has built that up into something where he has a number of people that are coming out to listen to him. I had to do a leadership meeting on the third day, and uh, I taught on how David took his men and turned them into mighty men. Now, I'll give you the story how that happened. In Samuel, it talks about how David was on the run and his life was being sought. And the scripture says that 
the kinds of people that joined themselves to him were in debt, they were discontent, and they were distressed. Those three groups of people joined themselves to David, and there were hundreds of them. And the, the, the thing that's so beautiful in that story is that even though they joined themselves to David and they had all of these problems, in the end, they became the mighty men of David's inner circle. Now, they were in debt. They were distressed. They were discontent. They never changed David, but David changed them. And that's what good leaders do. They change the people that they're talking to. It causes them to believe that God's bigger than anything that they're facing. And it causes them to believe that if they walk with God, God can do supernatural things. David took people that had no hope of victory in their life. They were debtors to all kinds of people. Very unhappy. And they just were stressed out in different areas of their life. But by spending time with David, God changed them. So that's what I talked the leaders in the meeting that I have that night. And you can see in the picture some of them while I'm standing up there and I'm kind of teaching. The reason we want to teach something like that to Kenyans is because if you have a group of people who for the most part believe that they're on the bottom and the folks in the West are on the top, you've got to convince them that the same God that helped the people in the West can help the people in the East. Amen. God is no different. So there is a mentality that has to be dealt with. If, if a person has a poverty mentality and it's a, a hold out the hand mentality, always looking for help, then someone has to change their thinking to believe that you seek God rather than the hands of men. And this is why we take the time to minister to the leaders and help them to see that. So it's, it's a very important uh, principle. Uh, on uh, Saturday, I went out to another church. I had uh, three sessions and I had 80 pastors and elders. A wonderful meeting as I taught on prayer. They had asked if I would minister on that. I preached on one of my favorite scriptures, Mark 135. I said, if anything ever happens to me, that's the verse they got to put on my tombstone. Rising up a great while before day, Jesus went out and prayed. He went out to a solitary place and there prayed. All of us should have a relationship with God when it comes to prayer. That's what I taught the pastors. You cannot expect God to do supernatural things if you don't want to be a person of prayer. And I explained to them that prayer is not merely a ritual where you stand up and read a prayer written from 300 years ago or a prayer somebody else wrote uh, for you. It has to be a genuine relationship that you have with God. And if you don't believe God's going to answer your prayer, what's the point in praying? If you don't believe God's going to bless your food, why go through all of that? But if you believe God is going to help you and he'll do that, then you should pray. So in encouraging them... I gave them several testimonies from the Middle East about the things we saw back in the 1991 and 92 revival when I preached in the underground churches there. I saw a lot of people come to know Jesus Christ in the Middle East. We've ministered to a lot of Muslims. So I told them this story. We had a young man in the underground church who worked for the Saudi royal family. He was a houseboy. I can't remember now if he was Indian or uh, Bangladeshi. But 
This young man, in working in the Saudi household, was witnessing to different people, and he led one of the princes. Uh, King Fahad is now dead, but King Fahad, when I was in Saudi Arabia, had over 500 wives and concubines. One of those princes, this young man was a houseboy for, he led her to Christ. Once they found out she had become a Christian, of course, he's in trouble. It's against the law in Saudi Arabia to proselytize. There's no Christian literature. Outward displays of Christianity are against the law. There's no Christian television, no Christian radio. You won't find any of that. So for what this young man did, he put his life in jeopardy. And sure enough, he ended up having to go to court. They had a trial. I knew all about it because once he was apprehended, it was all around the underground church. And in the underground churches, you typically have a house church of maybe 30 people or no more. You would never let it grow larger than that. If you did, you draw more attention from your neighbors. And so in these meetings on Fridays, we would sometimes meet for church 7 a.m. Friday morning. The next Friday, we might meet at 2 p.m. The next Friday, we might meet at 2 a.m. Always in a different location, sometimes out in the desert, sometimes in someone's living room, sometimes in some kind of gymnasium, but anywhere where Christians can gather. And you have these underground churches all over Saudi Arabia where Christians are gathering to worship God. This young man was tried and condemned and found guilty of proselytizing and was sentenced to death. Now, had he been British or American, it probably wouldn't even happen like this. But if you're Filipino, if you're Pakistani, Somali, from a nation that's not so strong, they'll condemn you and give you the death penalty. So this young man was sentenced to death. And in Saudi Arabia, I think I've told you before, executions are carried out Friday after the morning mosque meeting. If there's a beheading, if there's a stoning, and I've seen one of them up close over there, all the people come out of the mosque and then they're there to watch the judgment that is then enacted upon the person that's been condemned. Well, this young man was brought out and they had thousands of people out there in the square. This occurred in Riyadh, the capital there in Saudi Arabia. And they said that the young man said before uh, you do your deal with the punishment and all of that, please let me pray. And they said he bowed his head in front of all of that Muslim congregation that was out there, bowed his head. I don't know what he prayed, but I know they said when he looked up after he had said amen, said he looked at a man over here on the left and the man on the left fell over dead. And said he looked at a man that was over here in the front in the middle of the crowd, said that man fell backwards, died. They looked at a man over here on this side. And that man fell over and died also. And in the end, they come to find out that one was the jailer, the other was the prosecuting attorney, and the other was the judge. It was just like Acts chapter 12, where the angel smote Herod and he died. Or you had uh, other situations in the New Testament where judgment came. Ananias and Sapphire, Acts chapter 5. So with, with, when that happened... All of a sudden, the, the underground church was just on fire with the testimony of this young man. And of course, when that happened, they, they let him go back to work. Didn't nobody even want to bother him anymore at, at all. 
So I told the Kenyan pastors that because I wanted to encourage them. Islam is growing over there. You remember the first time we went several years ago, 10 days before we went, that's when they had that attack on that mall. And the terrorists went in there and they grabbed the Western people and they separated everybody. And they said, all of you who are Muslims, recite the Islamic prayer. And the ones that did not know the Islamic prayer, they shot them on sight. That was 10 days before we went. And, and, and some of you and some of the folks in the other churches were quite concerned and worried about us going over there. But, you know, I, I've always had this idea when I was in the military, they, they oftentimes sent me to, to, to harm's way in difficult uh, situations. And I never one time ever second guessed any orders that I had that came down. And because I believed that we were in the will of God going to Kenya, uh, that is why we went. That, that's why we went. And, and the Lord protected us and God kept us. So those pastors were encouraged to know that even though Islam is growing over there. God is still strong enough to handle them. Uh, one night, uh, one of the other times we went, I was on the radio and it was in the evening time and he had asked me to preach a message half in English, half in Arabic. And so I did. I did 15 minutes in English, 15 minutes in Arabic and, and just told the gospel story of who Jesus Christ is. And I'll never forget that next morning people were showing up at the church and they told the bishop, we came because we heard the broadcast last night and we wanted to know who was the white American that had come. And then here I am. Here I am. Yeah. So we, that, that meeting with the pastors was in a, a little village called Kiragoya. And we had a wonderful time. When I was done preaching, we had put together because a lot of you had given wonderful gifts uh, for the, the Kenya mission, and we thank you for that. We had put together envelopes that had money in them. We put it in, in Kenyan shillings. And I told Bishop, I said, I don't want these people to know that this money comes from me. So I'm going to give all these envelopes to you. And I said, I want you to bring these people up one by one and give it to them. And the reason for that is more of a practical thing. If, if, if they think it's me and know it's me, people will be looking for me online and people will be trying to contact me and all of that. But if, if we're helping the bishop, then it strengthens him in the eyes of the people. So one by one, I watched these pastors come up there. Folks, I'm telling you, some of them barely had a, had a pair of pants or, or, or anything like that. Just you know, if they had a suit of clothing, it, it, that was all that they were wearing. And they just had the biggest smiles on their face because they had no idea that they were going to be blessed with some a little bit of money like that. And just the smile on their faces. A few of the pastors couldn't make it. Their wives were there. And to see the happiness on the face of the wives. I mean, you know, you can help a pastor a whole lot if he doesn't have to worry about how he's going to feed his family. He can preach that much better. He can spend time in prayer. He can spend time talking to God. So, so that, that, that money... Went a long way. Like I said, we had over 80 pastors and elders there. This, this went on for a long time as the bishop was handing these folks the money and people were hugging him and they were just crying. And I just sat back and I just thought, oh, God, I'm so glad that, that I've got people behind me that love the world enough that they care about these kinds of things. We throw more money away each week than some of these folks would ever see. My wife gets on me because I won't even maintain pennies. 
I just I get rid of them. I mean, but those things go a long way in some places. So on Sunday then, and I'm going to ask you now to go to Ezekiel chapter 38. On Sunday, I had prayed about what to minister to these folks in Kenya. And I felt like the, the Lord wanted me to share a little bit concerning the last days, the end times. Ezekiel 38. Now let me just give you a setup for this. I did three services that morning. The Bishop's Church, the Eastgate Assembly there in Nyeri, Kenya, they've got probably six or seven hundred people in that church. And I did the three services. The first service I ministered uh, in English and I taught from Luke 21 verse 24 about the Jews will be taken away captive led into all the nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I gave them a history lesson of God taking a man named Abraham, creating a family, which eventually became a tribe that later became a nation that was then planted in the promised land on the condition that they would obey God. But if they didn't obey God, they would be uprooted and dispersed into different countries and take, taken captive. I then explained to them that the Israelites did not go as captives into many nations of the world until after Jesus' crucifixion because he had prophesied that you'll see the temple come down. One stone won't be left upon another. That never happened until the Romans came and took the Jewish people captive. So I explained to, explained to them that for nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people had been residents of a variety of different countries, while you still have a handful of uh, Israelites dwelling in a promised land, and that they had been under the, the power of the Muslim, the power of Christians in some occasions, and then other different governments. But it was supernaturally, in accordance with Ezekiel 36, that the Lord began to bring the children of Israel home. Ezekiel 36, I'm just giving an overview before I get to 38. Ezekiel 36 is the chapter where the Lord tells the prophet to speak to the mountains and prophesy and say, you are going to flourish. and Men are going to be multiplied upon the land of Israel. The reason this is important is because Ezekiel was a captive himself when these prophecies were taking place. He was in Babylon. But he was prophesying about the Lord restoring Israel. He didn't live long enough to see that. And from the time of the Babylonian captivity until 1948, we're talking nearly 2,500 years or so, Israel never had sovereignty over their own land. But May 15, 1948, when the Israeli Knesset held their first session, that was the first time in nearly 2,500 years that they themselves were their own sovereign over their own land. So I told the Kenyan people, I said, look, what is going on in the Middle East now with Israel is prophetic, it's powerful. Romans 11 and Romans 9 talks about it's God that's in control and sovereign as far as who raises up nations and puts them down. So I said, this is all in the plan of God. I said, there are a few other things you do need to know about. And I said, these things will occur too. 
So Ezekiel 36 talks about Israel coming back into the land. Ezekiel 37 tells us about how God's going to take all of the different tribes, put them together so that they will no longer say, I'm of this tribe, I'm of that tribe, but they will be one stick. They'll all be the same. And when I lived in Israel going to Hebrew school, you, you will not find anybody today other than probably the Orthodox Jews who run around Israel talking about I'm of the tribe of Issachar. I'm of the tribe of Dan. They all consider themselves Israelites. Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled. So chapter 38 then, notice verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog. Now Gog is a title. It's not a personal name like Daryl or Richard. It's a title like Pharaoh or President. In the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Teba. So God is saying he is opposed to this area, opposed to the leader of this area. Where is this area located today? Modern Russia, parts of the, the countries that constitute the old United Soviet Socialist Republic, parts of Central Asia. Find you a good old map and you'll find a lot of these names connected with it. Rosh, Rosh, Head, Rus, connected with Russia. Verse number four, I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws. Now, I'm a KJV guy, but I'm just reading New King James just to help, help you out here with some of this. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So he's speaking of an army. In the last days, there's going to be a point in time where the Russian army, as we're going to see here in a few verses, are going to make their way southward toward the land that we know today as Israel. Yeah. Now you say, what, what's all this got to do with Kenya? We're getting there. We're getting there. So verse 4 tells us that, that Russia is going to have an army in the last days. You wonder why in the world Russia is strong and why their military might is respected. Folks, this is prophesied. This is all predicted in Scripture. This is not going to change. Russia is going to be a power for some time to come. They're not going to be the only power, but they're certainly going to be a power. Notice their allies mentioned in verse 5. Persia. Who is Persia today? Iran. Ethiopia, also known as Cush. And Libya, they're in North Africa. So you've got East Africa, Ethiopia. You've got Libya, North Africa. Then you've got Persian there in the Middle East are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Why is it that no matter what it is that we do or the West does in the Middle East, that Russia and Iran remain confederate? It's prophesied, folks. They're, they're going to have relationships. Ethiopia... Although there are a large number of Christians there, Ethiopia for many years was a communist-ruled country. Yeah. And Libya? Of course, Mr. Gaddafi used to love the Russians. And a lot of the leadership and people that are there still have those sentiments toward them, even though there's nothing but chaos there right now. So verse 4 and verse 5 speaks of 
an alliance between these countries. In verse 6, Gomer and all of his troops. Just start with Germany and start working your way eastward. All of its troops. The house of Togarma. That's over in Central Asia. That's going to be, that's going to be west of Armenia, parts of Turkey. Togarma. From the far north, all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you'll be visited. In the latter years you'll come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. When Zionism began at the late 19th century and people started going back, the Jewish people started going back. Remember, the Ottoman Empire had controlled Israel for no less than 500 years. And when the Israelites started going back, there was hardly a tree there. The, the, the Muslim population had decimated the land uh, to the point that people were literally saying that the, the, the area where the Jewish people were returning to was unfit for habitation. So you had a lot of disease, things like that. It wasn't a beautiful, flourishing place. If you look at a satellite image right now, you will observe that you have one little sliver of land on the east of the Mediterranean, and it's green and beautiful, and then you see everything all around in satellite images. It's all brown. Why is that? Because God has taken that one little parcel of land and caused it to be blessed. Now, this is despite the fact all of their neighbors have oil. But yet God has supernaturally provided for the children of Israel, multiplied men upon them because it's all predicted in Scripture. And they are the people Ezekiel is talking of who have come back from the sword, come back from captivity. It's a, it's a very interesting thing to me. That. At one time, you had large populations of Jewish people in Iraq, Iran, Yemen, all around the Persian Gulf, places like that, uh, from South Africa to the East African areas. And, and then you notice what Islam did when it came and took over many of these regions. And, and you look at the, the, the standard or the flag that these good folks have over there. Now, even in Saudi Arabia, the big green flag you see very often, even in Palestine, and it says on there in Arabic, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his apostle or his prophet. And then you always see this, this up under there, you always see this long sword. And one by one, Jewish people have been delivered and come out of many of these countries. The word sword here is talking about captivity, but I'm speaking figuratively now how they've been rescued and delivered from so many of these Islamic nations. Verse 9, Russia, you're going to come up like a storm covering the land like a cloud, you and all of your troops and many peoples with you. They're going to come quickly. Now, why are they going to do it? Because verse 10, an evil thought shall arise in their mind, and they will say in verse 11, let's go up against the land of unwalled villages, go to a peaceful people that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having bars nor gates, to take plunder, to take booty or spoil, to stretch out their hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. 
Russia is going to say, why in the world are we going to leave that beautiful breadbasket to the south of us when we can go down there and have everything that they have? Why did Saddam Hussein invade Kuwait? When I was in the United States Marine Corps, he had a meeting with our Secretary of State at the time, notified them of their, his intent to go into Kuwait. We said nothing. We said that's an internal matter between you folks because Saddam Hussein was saying Kuwait was originally a part of Iraq, and it was. But when he went in there, the first thing he did was capture all the oil fields and went right into the banks and got all the money out of that because that is what interested him. And many ancient nations and modern nations today, when they get involved with warfare, uh, usually you'll hear phrases like this. Well, it's in our interests. That means we're going to get something out of it. We're going to get some profit out of this. And the Russian nation at some point in their life or in their uh, existence, the leader of Russia is going to make up his mind, and it doesn't have to be Putin, whoever is the one that's in charge, is going to make up his mind that he's going down into Israel, and you got verse 11 and 12 that gives you some of the reasons why he is going. So I'm telling all of this to the Kenyan people. They're sitting on the edge of their seat. They're paying attention to all of this. And then I said to them in verse 13, but there will be opposition to Russia and their allies. Sheba and Dedan. That's parts of the Arabian continent. So some of that has to change over there for the better. The merchants of Tarshish. Remember when Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, he fled to Tarshish. We know Tarshish today is modern day what? Spain. Spain. And all their young lions will say, if you come to take plunder, if you gathered your army to take a spoil, to carry away silver and gold. There it is, the money. To take away livestock and goods, to, to take a great plunder. And all their young lions. So Spain at one time was a very strong kingdom, and, 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 and they were colonizing a lot of the world. And the, the people that sailed from Europe and came over here and was discovering the land here uh, come from over there. See. So if you go back to medieval times and you look at the crest of Great Britain, then one of the things you notice on the crest is they have a lion. And there was a time when Great Britain colonized so much of the world that the kingdom of Great Britain was so big, folks would say the sun never sets on Great Britain. Yeah, that's how, how large it was, stretching all the way to India, folks, coming all the way over here. But, but the young lions, what, what would be some of the countries that would be confederate with Great Britain that had been colonized by them? New Zealand? Australia, uh, Canada, a host of islands, South Africa, that, that, that big rebellious colony that we live in right now called the United States of America. And then I said to the, the, the folks over there in Kenya, and I said, Let, let's not forget about the young lions over there that were, that were colonized by Great Britain, Uganda. Tanzania, we call it Tanzania, and Kenya. So I said to the folks in Kenya in that meeting, I said, look, you folks right now have the fastest growing economy in the whole continent of Africa. There's a reason for that. 
They have just found huge oil reserves over there in Kenya and have found resources that no other country in Africa has that they're making use of. It, that place is, there's construction taking place all over the country. And I said to them, look, God's going to help you folks stand up strong in the last days just like other countries. And no matter what everybody else cries about and prophesies about how America's going to fall apart and all these other nations are going to fall apart, I said the ones that are there in verse 13 are going to be fine because they're going to have to be in position in order to resist that Russian confederacy one day when they come down. So that was the second service. I'm not even going to preach to you all of the third service. The third service on Sunday, pastor did an overview for them of the entire book of Revelation. Wow, you should have saw how excited they were. Folks, Jesus is soon to come. And with him coming so soon, we should do everything we can to let people know about Christ. So after three services... And I was exhausted. Then we had to go down to a place called the Tamara Valley. And you saw in the pictures. The Tamara Valley has about 10,000 residents in it. No running water. No electricity. These are some of the poorest people you will encounter on the earth. These little kids were just rummaging through mounds of garbage. It just broke our hearts. Just to, I didn't even take pictures of that because I didn't even, didn't even want to bring those back, showing those to people. But these little kids and their parents live in an area in that valley that's filled with nothing but filth and sin. Drugs, prostitution, robbery, rape. The people down in that valley, they rob their neighbors if their neighbors have something that they want and they don't have. Yeah, very, very terrible, terrible place. I watched and you can see under that tent just a handful of the people. That was just when it was getting started. That's that's not all the people that came, but it was just getting started. And there were girls, 13, 14, 15 years of age, already had kids down there. Yeah, That tent structure that's up there in the picture. They put that up every Sunday, and Bishop Karani's son, and there's a picture of him, he's bald also, there's a picture of him. He goes with his team, and he doesn't have any kind of musical instruments. He just sets that tent up, invites the people to come, and just flat-footed, stands up there and preaches the gospel for 45 minutes, and then does things with the young people. I said, oh my, anybody doing work like this, we got to help this young man. So we, we, we really uh, worked to, to bless him. Uh, Bishop's sons have caught the vision for ministry. As I said, Bishop started over 300 churches in East Africa, tremendous ministry. He was telling me one time about how he went back to his own village to preach. He had been gone, and you know what the Bible says, you very often without honoring your own village. But he said in that village he had a, a, a platform set up there. Hundreds of people had come out to hear him, and he said after he was done preaching, he was praying for the sick. And he said there, one of the village girls Little girls that he knew and everybody there in the village knew was blind and God healed the girl. God gave him favor with the people there in the village. Just a, a remarkable, remarkable testimony. 
So when we finished up there in the valley, giving out clothing, and free articles and garments to people, uh, we went back home. But it was a very moving, moving thing to see uh, some of these folks on drugs, to see these people with, with, with uh, some of them without any shoes on, coming to get sweaters and shoes and pants just to be able to go back and uh, take it to their kids and to take it back home so that they'll have something to wear uh, the next day. In Kenya, if, if you want to go to school, they don't have free education like we have here, where you just register and then your kid is allowed to go. Uh, the mother and father have to pay money, have to pay an annual fee for the kids to go to school. Nobody in that valley goes to school. Nobody has any money. So the, the, the kids are, for the most part, uh, illiterate in that sense. So they're, they're working to, to develop a, a school down in that valley through the church where they can bring those kids and the kids can at least learn how to read and write. You know, it's a powerful thing to be able to know how to read and write. We, we take that for granted, too. But I learned that years ago as a teenager down in North Carolina when I was teaching Sunday school. And I asked a man to read a, a scripture there in the, the uh, lesson book. And, and he didn't respond. And then I came back and I asked him again. And he didn't respond. And finally, I learned that this 80-some-year-old man didn't know how to read. And it was just one of the most embarrassing times of, of my life. But I learned something, that when you do know how to read, it's a powerful thing. But, but even my wife and, and myself, uh, we've got folks that are older on our sides of the family that come out of the South, never did learn how to read. Never did. It's because it just, you just didn't, didn't do that back then. Didn't have time. Somebody had to get out there and work in the cotton fields and, and all of that. So this is a, a vision that they have to do something for those young people. And, and I, can, I can only tell you it's an it's a important thing. It's a very important thing. Let me move on a little bit. On, on the Monday following, we went on a safari. You see the pictures related to that. Folks, we got to that safari place after we drove two and a half hours, and then the last 45 minutes are just the worst Kenyan roads you can think of doing this the whole way. We got there, and on that sign, the sweet water, whatever it was, we go in, and they wanted to charge $100 for me, $100 for Tiffany, and $10 for the Kenyan people. So I said, let me go in there and talk with them. So I went there and I, I spoke with the, the young man and it, it, it didn't, still didn't work out. So we were getting ready to drive away. So I said, I want to talk to the boss. Give me a phone number for the boss. So I got the boss who was a British lady on the phone and I said, look, I said, this is a travesty that you'd have foreigners come to a, 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 pre, a preserve where you've got all this, this wildlife and you're going to charge me $100, my wife $100, and then charge the Kenyan people just $10 each. I'm going to ride in the same vehicle with them, see the same animals. They're going to see, this is an outrage. Bishop had ne never heard anybody talk like that <laughs> to somebody British. <clears throat> and so the lady, she said, well, she said, uh, maybe maybe we can work out a price for you and we can give you the children's rate. I said, oh, that'd be pretty good. So Tiffany and I got in on the children's rate and we only had to pay $100 for both of us to go in. And fortunately, the church, they, they, they took up a nice offering for us and they themselves 
paid for us to go on that on that safari. But my, my poor little baby, she was just so embarrassed that the that the foreigner was there going through through all of that. I had to I had to teach a a, a Bible study, and I went over to a church in a little village called Tetu, and I interviewed pastor over there. There's a, in the pictures there, there's a picture of some little kids standing in the street. They, they, they saw me as I was interviewing the pastor. They had never seen themselves in a camera. They were so excited just to see themselves inside that. And, and I was talking to the pastor. I said, how did you start this church? And the pastor said, well, there used to be a fig tree right about where you're standing, Daryl. And said, that fig tree was worshipped as a god here. And said, I wanted to put a church here. This was the only land I could get, but I knew I had to cut the tree down. But if I cut the tree down, I knew the people would want to kill me in the village because they believe that God is real. And he said, I couldn't get anybody to come and cut the tree down. The pastor I had appointed here didn't want to cut the tree down. So he said, I found six of the, the most vile pagans you could ever find. And he said, I got them some chainsaws. And I said, once we get to that land, I said, we're going to have this tree down in 30 minutes. He said, the moment you start that chainsaw, he said, no matter what takes place, I do not want you to stop. And they cut it down. And that village almost rioted and almost destroyed that pastor's life. The, the, the mayor and everybody said they were going to take him to court. People were calling, threatening his life, all because they cut down a fig tree. But the pastor was saying, if your fig tree is a god, why can't your god defend himself? See, think about that, folks. Around this world, that, that kind of superstition. One of the, close to the final night, we took the bishop out and we just kind of shared some testimonies. He was telling us some amazing stories. He was uh, explaining how he was sitting in a restaurant where we had eaten several times. And he said, a man walked in and said to, to him, he said, Bishop, your mother's a dog. Your father's a dog. You're a dog. You're a son of dogs. And the bishop said he was trying to figure out why this man was so upset. And the man said, well, everywhere you go, you're harassing me. Well, Bishop was putting his tent up all around the region, preaching Christ and seeing hundreds of people come to salvation. He said he got up to walk out because he didn't want an altercation there in the restaurant. And when he got outside the restaurant, that, that man hauled off and physically assaulted him. But Bishop said he didn't respond. He just kept going to his car. Later on, the man that hit him ended up in prison, found Jesus as his savior, and then called the bishop once he got out and said, Bishop, I just want to tell you what happened on that day. He said, a man had paid me and the attorney here in town and the policeman to create an altercation with you so that we could put you in jail and stop the work of God. And when you came out of that restaurant and you didn't respond to me, you probably noticed there was a policeman sitting on the other side of the road. He said, yeah, I saw him. He said, that man was waiting to arrest you and put you in jail without even a trial if you would have responded and fought me back. I said, oh, my. Yeah. He tells a story of how as he was holding all of these meetings, one night he came home and he was in his house and he heard a bunch of noise in his neighbor's yard. So he said he went over to the house and he opened up the curtains and he said he looked and he saw about 40 armed men in the front yard and they were harassing the maid of the house over there. 
But he said he could hear them yelling, take us to the bishop's house. You will show us where the bishop lives. Take us to his gate right now. Well, the little girl with 40 people harassing her, eventually she, you know, kind of relented under the pressure, walked them around to the bishop's gate. It was pitch black outside. They don't have no street lights or nothing out there. And said she, she showed the people where the bishop's gate was and said the people were out there in the darkness and they were trying to find the gate and still couldn't find it even though she took them there. Bishop said he was in the house praying, saying, Lord, you said in your word you would hide us and you would be our refuge. They called that maid back again. She came back one more time and pointed out the gate and touched the gate and said, here's the gate right here. This is it. And then she walked away and they still couldn't find the gate. Utterly confused out there in the middle of the darkness. It was the next day he discovered that they got so uh, frustrated that they couldn't find it that they got in their cars and drove away, but they robbed every house going down the block, see, and they were looking, looking for him. I'll give you one more story that he had told me. He, he, he said that <clears throat> as we were driving through a village where I was going to preach, he said, Daryl, this is a remarkable story. He said, there's a gang of, of, of people called the Mungiki, and he said, these people are very violent, he said, in this village right here, they came and terrorized the people so bad that the, they shut the village down and the police wouldn't even come into town. The police stayed outside the town and blocked everybody from, from going into the town. It was so bad. And he said, I had a campaign to preach there. He said, I pulled up and the policeman said, what are you doing here? He said, I've got to preach an outdoor campaign here and uh, I need to get in there. They said, you can't go in there because the, the gang members are in there and everything is shut down. Main Street is closed. Everybody's in their house. The, the streets are abandoned. You can't go. He said, I have to go. We've announced the meeting. Well, they couldn't stop him. So he went on in. He said he got to the town. He said it was just like an old Western. You know, the whole thing was deserted. You couldn't find a soul walking up and down the road. He told his team, set up the platform, get the tent and everything ready. He said he sent some people out knocking door to door to get people to come out. After a little while, a few people started coming out. They amassed there in the city square. He said he got up to preach. And he said the leader of that gang came and said, haven't you heard that we've shut down all public meetings? No public assemblies are allowed. Bishop said he said to the man, well, my boss hadn't told me that. And I've got to preach the gospel here. And the man said, well, you tell me where your boss is. And I have a talk with him and let him know. And the bishop said, well, my boss is up there in the sky. And if you can reach him, then I'll listen to what you have to say. Well, that, that man, he said, well, I'm telling you right now, you shut this meeting down. Or you're going to be in trouble. Bishop kept preaching. He got to the end of his message and Bishop felt the spirit of God on him. He said he felt like God wanted him to say to this man, you need to repent of your sins and get right with God today. Or judgment's going to come to you tomorrow. He said that in front of everybody. He said that man laughed at him and walked away, didn't pay him any mind. But the next day, that man, he ended up in some kind of altercation with the policeman. And the policeman blew the man's head off with their weapons. You know, the, the, the scripture says, touch not my anointed, folks. Do my prophet no harm at, at all. Our final day there, or I probably should add this, after we've gone through sharing testimonies, I was sharing testimonies of traveling and ministry as he was sharing with me, uh, a lot of the monies, all of the monies that we had taken to Kenya, we'd taken several thousand dollars over there, we, for all the different uh, 
ministries that they had, uh, we gave, we sold into all of that. They, they had a ministry for uh, kids that, but Tiff, what's that when them kids can't keep their attention? They had a ministry for autistic kids, had about 30 of them that they bust in every day to take care of them because they didn't like the fact that the parents couldn't come to church because the kids were being somewhat disruptive, so they started a class just for them. Uh, the same thing with the, the, the orphanage, which we've supported for a long time. A lot of these kids' parents have died with AIDS, and here you've got these beautiful little kids that are in this big, huge building in this orphanage, and they feed them every day. They look after them 24 hours a day. So we were, we were giving them the gifts, just letting them know how much we love them, we believe in them. And, and folks, if there's anything we've ever sown into in our lives, I can tell you this is a very fruitful thing. There are a lot of projects that are worthy of receiving attention and time and giving. But I know that what we're doing with this is a wonderful thing. Our, our, our last day, we, we spent it uh, at lunch with a Maasai warrior of the Maasai tribe. You know, the ones that when they're turned 14 to 15, got to go out and kill a lion, that kind of a thing. So we, we're sitting there and I'm looking at this man. He's a lawyer. And, and so I, I was really curious about this. I wanted to know. I said, sir, is it really true that to enter into manhood, those Messiah young men got to go kill a lion? He said, well, he said, it is true. They still do it. But he said, I have a story for you that's even better than, than one of that, one of those. He said, when I was in my early 20s and my wife and I lived out on Messiah territory, and he said, I lived in a grass hut. My babies were in the hut with my wife. He said, one night a lion came out to that hut where we were at. He said, my wife pled with me, please don't go out there. Please don't go out there. Something bad could happen. And he said, well, honey, what's the alternative? Either I go out there, something bad happens, or he comes in here, kills you and the kids. We've got to do something. So this man, he said, he went out there. He had nothing but an axe in his hand. And he said, in the middle of the night, nothing but that sh the light of the moon that was shining down on that lion. He said, that lion was prowling around. He said, the shoulders of the lion were as tall as his head. And he said, that lion came and reared up. And, the, and uh, that man, he said, he, he his, I think his name was Joel, he pulled, he, he, he brought that axe down on the jaw of that lion and cracked it. He said that lion went back and he said that lion came at him again and he said he stepped to the side and he brought that axe head down and he cracked that lion's skull. He said the lion laid down there, it was dead. He said he called his wife, his children came out there and the Maasai custom, they, they cut the head off, took the mane and everything, put it on the staff so that all the, the, the uh, village people would know that they had, they had killed a lion. Now, he's telling me this story, folks, and I'm telling you, as he's telling me this, and he's serious, and he's earnest, and I'm looking at this man, and I'm thinking, and I'm afraid of big dogs. And this man is killing lions, you see. Yeah, it's a different world out there. But when we go back next summer, the plan is to have a big outdoor campaign. We've been invited by the Maasai warriors to come they expect anywhere from maybe anywhere from 10 to 20,000 that may come out there to that outdoor meeting but I will go again in April to prepare the pastors for that big outdoor meeting that we're going to have so in the months to come I'll tell you more about that but folks uh, God bless you and thank you 
for everything you've given towards that, because I can assure you uh, it, it didn't go to enrich us. It, it went right over there to be a blessing to them, and they are so happy that there are people on the other side of the planet that love them enough to give and support. Praise God. Isn't God good? Amen. So that's our report on evangelism in East Africa. We need to have a word of prayer, and I think we've got some birthday stuff going on around here. But let's have a word of prayer. Word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you. We thank you for an opportunity to be able to share all of the good news of what you're doing there in East Africa, in particular in Kenya. Lord, continue to increase us and bless us as we walk with you, that we'll have a heart, Lord, for people here, as well as for a heart, a heart for people over there. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said,